a privilege to be with you today to share God's word with you, but it's a greater privilege to be that girl's dad. Is that too sappy for you this morning? Yeah, actually, I have the privilege of not only being Hannah's dad, but also Brianna's dad and Ryan's dad, and they're here today. My wife Kristen is here, and my new grandbaby Ellie is here. Our first grandchild is with us, and born in December. And I'm CJ's dad, CJ Johnson's dad, and he ditched chapel today, so he's not even here for his dad to speak, but he's actually off on a retreat. But you know him as well, and it is a great privilege to be their dads. Also, I see Dr. Greer here today, who was my advisor uh, when I graduated in 1991, so thanks for coming over. Really, what a, what a blessing, and to Dr. Walls and Adam, thank you for the opportunity to come. I'm going to actually ask you if you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read again the passage that was read, and I'm going to ask if you would stand in honor of the Word of God. We will be only together for a few minutes today in what is a relatively small, short passage that is very familiar to you, no doubt, um, if you grew up going to church and Sunday school, uh, and yet I think it has a profound, profound impact on our lives if we can understand and answer the question, what sort of man is Jesus? And so I'm going to read Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let me pray. Father, would you, in your grace toward us today, help us to see Jesus a little more clearly? Father, what sort of man is this? This is the God-man. This is the sovereign Lord of the universe, who is our Savior. And Father, as you help us to have a right perspective on who Jesus is, I pray that you would give us a a peace of heart. Lord, help us to see today the power and the presence of Christ in our life so that we can also experience the peace of Christ, not only presently, but even, Father, in future storms. Father, we want to glorify you by our response to difficult circumstances, by keeping our eyes on Jesus and, and trusting him fully in the trials of our lives, Father. May we today cast our anxiety on you because you care for us and because you're strong enough to carry those anxieties. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I appreciated what was said over here about the Super Bowl being a little bit stressful yesterday, especially if you're an Atlanta Falcons fan. But in reality, in reality, stressful situations is a big part of all of our lives. And while I sit, stand before you with my family and my kids in front and a little baby granddaughter, and I wish that I wish that none of them would ever go through storms in life. I know that it's true that they will, because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And oftentimes, what we're more concerned about than we should be is the storm itself, um, instead of the Savior. And because of that, we have storms that live within us. And worry and anxiety is far too big of a piece of all of our lives as believers and followers of Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, the Bible says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What that tells us is, is that God is, is mighty, that he's big, but also that he's benevolent and kind and that he cares for us. And so we can cast our anxieties on him. But if you're like me, I, I just worry too much. There's too many things that I'm always thinking about. In fact, that idea of anxiety is just to think about something over and over and over again. And many times we just over-anticipate. And it, it sort of spoils our spirit and it spoils our, our testimony. I, 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 once, I once heard of a person that said this, I worry, I worry that if olive, if, if olive oil comes from olives and peanut oil comes from peanuts, where does baby oil come from? That's a good thought. Where does it come from? Curry Tin Boom said this, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow, but it empties today of its strength. I remember when I just had graduated from the Master's College, it was a, it was a stressful time in my life, really, because I was, a, I was a newlywed. We just had our first baby. was born just nine days. Uh, during that, some nine days before, I, I moved up to the Antelope Valley, Lancaster, to start my first teaching job, and I was just so, so stressed out and worried that that every single night I would wake up in the night and I was actually sleepwalking. Are there any sleepwalkers in the room? I, so when I would get stressed out, I would, I would actually, I would, but then I, would, I even started doing just weird things in my sleep because the anxiety was getting to me. I, was, I had this fear of failure and what if, what if things don't work out or what if I don't do a good job? And I was just going nuts. And so I'd wake up in the night and I'd actually be teaching my Bible class in my sleep to my wife. If you could imagine, I was at the foot of the bed, and I, I, would make, I would do Bible checks. Get out your Bible, please. And my poor wife's in the middle of the night. And I remember one night after, you know, a week of this, just every night teaching her in my sleep. She finally raised her hand in our bed, and I called on her. That was the really sad part. <laughs> I said, yes. And she said, Mr. Johnson. I said, yes. And she said, would you please come back to bed? I was like, oh, what am I doing? I coached sports that whole year too and so every day I had to change my clothes really fast get my PE clothes on for seven straight nights I woke up in my PE clothes in the morning I had no idea how I was doing that <laughs> I don't know how you respond to stress or what sort of things might go on in your life but what I want you to know today is that Jesus Christ is big enough he's big enough to carry all of your concerns and he's benevolent enough he loves you enough to want to carry them and so we see in our passage today that, that the disciples are, are absolutely full of anxiety and fear. And, and Jesus questions their fear by, by asking the question, why do you have such little faith? Don't you realize that I'm in your boat? And, and that's what I would want to say to all of you today. Is Jesus did calm the storm on the sea, but he can also calm the storm in your hearts if you recognize that he's in your boat. That he's never going to leave you and he's never going to forsake you. I had an opportunity a couple weeks ago to spend some time with Dr. Wong, who is, who's just a wonderful, godly man, one of your professors. I would encourage you to find time with him before you leave this campus. He was, he was persecuted in China in the 1960s. His parents were taken away to labor camps. As a nine-year-old, he was raising his younger brother and sister, relying on neighbors to bring, bring them food. And I just asked him, I said, how in the world did you handle all of that? And, and, and he said, I, I just pray, I just pray. He said, my dad told me he was going to be taken away from us. And he said, when, you, when, when, when that happens, you have to just pray. You have to, you have to turn to the Lord. He even now prays for three hours a day. So I asked him this question. I said, Dr. Wong, how do you do that? Do you have some kind of system? Do you pray the scriptures? Do you have a journal? Like, like what's your plan? Because you, I don't know about you, but three straight hours, I might have a hard time concentrating that long. 
So you've got to have a system, right? And he says, no, I, I just get up in the morning and I tell God how much I love him and how great he is. And then I tell him all of my problems. I praise him and I tell him my problems. And he says, and then by the time I'm done praising him and telling him my problems, he seems a lot bigger and my problems seem a lot smaller. And that can be true for you too. Let's look at our passage for a few minutes and then I'll bring just a couple of points home for you. The first thing we see in verse 23 and 20, verses 23 and 24 is the sudden storm. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him and behold, there arose a great storm at the sea so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And so we see that this storm, this storm is sudden and the storm is, is great. In, in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, it says, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they were really following his command to go to the other side of the lake. And the storm came not because of their disobedience. They didn't find themselves in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in a storm because of their disobedience. But actually, they were in the middle of a storm, and it was a result of their obedience. Not like in the case of Jonah. These disciples did exactly what the Lord told them to do. It isn't true that if you live a life of obedience and intimacy with Christ, that you'll never face challenges in this life. It's just not true. Jesus knew this storm was coming. I have no doubt he was the author of the storm. He was, he was trying to teach them a valuable lesson. He loved them. Remember in John chapter 9, verse 2, Jesus goes to heal the blind man, and some of Jesus' disciples come, and they ask Jesus, so who sinned, this man or his parents? That's known as retributive theology. It was actually common in, in that day, and it's actually not so uncommon today in many of our minds. And it's the idea that anytime something goes wrong in my life, I'm being punished. But I will tell you this, that th there's going to be times that you're, you will suffer and you will go through significant loss even in moments of obedience. And so these disciples were out in the middle of that sea doing exactly what the Lord had told them to do. And, and, and I also will encourage you today that if, if discipline comes into your life because of your disobedience, even that's not meant to destroy you. It's a sign of God's affection for you. But notice in verse 24, their tranquility out on the Sea of Galilee, and I've been on the Sea of Galilee a couple of times. It is a beautiful, tranquil place, but it was shattered. In Mark chapter 4, verse 37, it's the, this storm is des described as a great tempest, it, it literally a seismos. It's the word we get for earthquake. Some of you maybe don't know it yet. Maybe you're coming from other parts of the country, but you're actually living pretty much on the San Andreas Fault. The, ex the interchange over here, the 14 interchange in my lifetime, just since I've lived in Southern California, I've always lived in this area, that has gone down twice. So if there's anybody in the room that sometimes you drive over that really high interchange, you think, what would happen if this fell? I, I don't want to get you to you know, take a detour every time now and not go on it, but it's gone down twice. The word being used here for this storm is, is, is a great storm. It's a, it's a great tempest. It's a huge storm. And, and that can be explained on the Sea of Galilee in, in sort of physical terms. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level. It sits inland in, in, in Israel, in northern Israel. It's surrounded by some mountains and canyons. And so when the, when the cool air from the Mediterranean hits the warm air on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, great and sudden storms, violent storms do break out. But we know who's the Lord of the storms, and we don't, I don't believe that this took Jesus by surprise at all. But what is Jesus doing during the storm? He's, a, he's asleep. Look at the end of verse 24. And Jesus was asleep. He was sleeping. And Mark, it says, on a pillow. So in the middle of this storm, Jesus is completely at peace. I believe it's because he's entrusted himself fully to his Father. And he knows that his Father's will will be accomplished, and he doesn't have to worry about the storms. And the same thing is true for you. Do you ever wish that you could sleep like that through the storms? Is there, is there anybody here that wishes they could sleep 
through the fire alarms that go off in the dorms? When somebody burns their popcorn, does that ever happen here, right? You're in the middle of, you're sleeping, or maybe even somebody from another dorm starts to, decides to pull the fire alarm, and next thing you know, you're all out front of your dorms, right? Jesus would just sleep through such a thing. He was totally at peace. He also, no doubt, was exhausted. If you read prior to this, he had an incredible ministry that he was doing, healing the sick and delivering those who were demon-possessed. But Jesus is at peace because he's entrusted himself to the Father. And then notice in verse 25, the scared disciples. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. These experienced fishermen know that they're in over their heads. They say, Lord, save us, rescue us. And then in Luke chapter 8, verse 24, it says that they went and said, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And so, so they go and wake up Jesus. Can you imagine how that discussion went down? These disciples are in this boat with Jesus. Now, we know that there were more than just the 12 disciples here. There were other disciples. There actually were other boats. But the boat Jesus is in, it says the disciples are there. Can you imagine how that conversation, who, who's going to wake up Jesus? They're scared to death. They think they're going to drown. They think they're going to die. They're in a panic. And they're just like, okay, you do it. And can you picture Peter, you know, just coming and saying, hey, hey, you know what, uh, Andrew, why don't you go, why don't you go and wake up Jesus? Just tap him on the shoulder and tell him, and, and can you imagine, or maybe you could just picture Peter saying this, Peter going and saying, hey, the other disciples are scared, could you, could you possibly stop this, could you help us? Have you ever been scared like that? I, I know, the, the, I was, the moment that I was the most scared and felt the most vulnerable, that's how they're feeling, was when one of my kids was being born. And we were on our way to the hospital, our second kid, our, and we were on our way to the hospital, and, and my wife looks over at me, and she says these words. The baby is coming in the car. I, I don't know how to deliver babies. I don't, have, I don't, I don't want to deliver a baby. I, I never cut the cord. I didn't want to cut the cord because I knew I would pass out if I tried to cut the cord. I'm like, I, this, this isn't going to work. I, I'm in a panic. She's like, hun, I feel the baby coming. The baby's coming. And this is our second child, so she knows what it means to have a baby. So if she says it's coming, it's It's coming. And I remember in that great moment of sensitivity as a husband, caring for his wife, dwelling with my wife in an understanding way, I looked over at her and I said, you are gonna have to hold it. <laughs> Man, I, I, I don't recommend that. <laughs> the response I got, my wife is the kindest, most gentle woman in the whole entire world, and only two times in our whole 28 years of marriage has she ever gotten mad at me. And it revolves around having children and stupid things that I said in those moments. And that, that was one of them. I was in a panic. Partially. Because with the car that we were in was the car my grandma had left me in her will. I don't know what kind of car your grandma drives, but my grandma drove a Chevy Chevette. And I thought, if my child is born in a Chevette, it will scar them for life. <laughs> this cannot be good. Thankfully, we made it to the hospital, and she had that baby with no painkillers minutes later. These disciples are in a panic. Hope that you can hear their heart. Save us, Lord. We are perishing. They literally thought they were about to die. In Mark 438, we get a little bit more information. They actually ask this question, do you care that we are perishing? Now that's interesting because that's, that's even a kind of a deeper question. They're beginning to doubt the goodness of Christ. Do you even care about us? 
Or in the middle of the storm, do you even care? The storm had caused them to question Christ's sincerity toward them. And in fact, we sometimes can fall victim to that same line of thinking. We begin to think that, wow, I've served you, Lord, and this is what I get. And we begin to question his goodness for us. But when you start to question God's goodness toward you and Christ's love for you, the place to look is not your circumstances. The place to look is the cross. In Romans 8.32, the Bible says this, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he gave you Christ, if he gave you the cross, then he's going to take care of every one of your needs. That he, you don't have to question his care for you because you're going through a significant time of, of loss or, or of stress in your life. I, 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 can't, I, I can't know all of your stories, but I know some of your stories. In fact, the whole worship team has been to my house this year, and so we got a chance to get to know them a little bit. Some of you are from the church that I've had the privilege of pastoring for many years now. I, I, I've done, some of your students, I, I, I've, I've done your mom's funeral. I mean, what I'm talking about here is not, it's not something, you know, like when I say, well, you're going to face storms in your life. Some of you have faced them even already. Others of you have, have gone through tragic circumstances with your family, and I, and I know you. And I know, I know what's gone on. There's a little girl named Jenna McComb. Jenna, one day, seven years old, most delightful little girl in the whole world, just stopped breathing. And I did her funeral in Eternal Valley at the cemetery right behind this campus. And some of you will face those kinds of situations. My wife and I have been through three miscarriages and the great disappointment and then the fear that we wouldn't have kids at all. And other, others, others in our congregation have, have gone through the devastating loss not only of children physically but loss of children spiritually as their kids fall away from Christ and it breaks their hearts and they're crushed over it. Storms are going to come, students, storms are going to come and you have to make up your mind before the storm comes that you're going to keep your eyes on Jesus, that he's in the boat, that we don't have to panic whatever the storm because we know that our sovereign Lord is in control. And that's, that's exactly what we see happen next. But we, we, can't, we can't forget to trust Christ's heart and also to trust his word for you regardless of the circumstances. You see, see they, they, began to, they began not only to question Jesus' heart for them, but they even questioned his, his word to them. Remember what he said, we're going to go to the other side? And Lucas says, we're going to the other side. Let's go to the other side. When Jesus says we're going to the other side, guess where you're going? The other side. You're going to make it to the other side. He didn't spare his own son for you, but gave him up for us all. So he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The next thing we see is the sovereign Lord's power put on display. So first we see the storm, the scared disciples, and now the sovereign Lord's power. Look at verse 26. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O little, you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Jesus was sleeping for a dual purpose here. It was to rest because he was fully man, but it also was to test. But that test of their faith wasn't to destroy their faith, but to develop their faith. And he gives a double rebuke. Maybe you'll notice that. He rebukes the disciples, but he also rebukes the waves. First, the disciples. He says to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And so he says, listen, the problem here is not that you've disturbed me, but it's that you're so disturbed inside. It almost, it almost seems like a, a silly question. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? 
What's, what's the dumbest question a parent ever asked a child? Like, you've no doubt experienced this. What's the dumbest question a parent could ever ask a child? Do, do you, you know what it is? Do you want a spanking? Do you remember that when you were kids? Do you want a spanking? Were you ever, like, you, did you ever, were you ever tempted? Maybe some of you were brave enough to actually do it. Like, actually, I do. How did, Dad, how did you know? You know your son so well. I just really love that sensation. Dad, could we use the belt? Could you bring out the belt? Bring it on. You see, it's, it's a question, though, that, that, that really, honestly, your parents, when they ask it, it's a re- by the way, when you were kids, it's a rhetorical question. So if you ever said yes, that's, it's, it's a question you don't answer. Do you want a spanking? You don't go, no. You don't say anything. Because you know in that moment you're about to get one. So Jesus comes and he says, why are you so afraid? Uh, well, it turns out that we're in the middle of a massive storm. There's no answer to be given. Why are you so afraid, O ye of little faith? What he's revealing there is that the real problem is the storm that's going inside of them and that it's a reflection of their lack of trust in him. If you look over in Matthew chapter 8, it's interesting, but the centurion, Matthew chapter 8, just a, just a few verses up from where we're at today, the centurion comes to Jesus, and, and around verse 10, the centurion comes to Jesus and he says, hey, my servant is a paralytic, can you heal him? centurion's a gentile he's not even a jew can you heal him and 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 jesus says sure i'll come to your house and he goes you don't even have to come to my house just say the word right he knows of the power of christ and and then jesus responds to that verse 10 is when the jesus heard this he marveled and said to those who followed him truly i tell you with no one in israel have i found such faith You, you see what he's saying he's saying my own disciples don't trust me as much as the centurion trusts my power and the evidence they don't trust his power is the anxiety that they're experiencing, the fear that they have. So he rebukes his disciples. He doesn't say they have no faith. He just says you have little faith. And the second thing he does is he rebukes the waves. And this is so important. Don't, don't, don't miss this, because I think primarily this passage is not about, and I'm going to make the application of it, I don't think the pri- passage is primarily about that Jesus can calm the storms of your heart. I think it's really that Jesus can calm the storms physically in this physical world. He's establishing his authority. And because of that, our hearts can be calmed. And so he says, then he arose, it says, then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea. What is that conversation like? Where we live, just 45 miles from here up in the Antelope Valley, it's windy all the time, like too much. And it's heavy winds that come every afternoon in the summer about 4 o'clock. And I can't tell you how many times I've been frustrated coaching Little League and coaching, you know, just being outside a lot. And I can't tell you, like, there's times where I just want to look at the wind and say, stop it. Just stop. Go away. Go to Santa Clarita. You know what I mean? Just leave us. But they never listen. There's significance here because Jesus does what only God can do. He rebukes the wind and the winds in the sea and thus it says, and there was a great calm. After a great storm comes through, water doesn't just stop and suddenly become calm and, 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 and no longer the waves, and they're gone. Great calm comes because Jesus is the Lord of the elements. He's sovereign over the storm. In fact, if you look earlier in Matthew chapter 8, in Matthew chapter 8, you see Jesus cleanses the leper. Notice this, it says um, in verse chapter Eight, verse 2, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, can you make me clean? By the way, I believe in praying for healing for people. I just don't think it's ever a good idea to be presumptuous and think that you know what God's purpose and plan is. 
So I don't mind coming, but this is how you pray. If somebody's sick, you say, Lord, we know that if you're willing, you're able. And that's how he prays. He comes to Jesus. I know if you're willing, you're able. Verse 3, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So what do we see there? Jesus has authority over sickness. A leper has an incurable disease, and he just says, be clean. And instantly, he's clean. He's ha- he has authority over sickness. We saw it with the centurion. In fact, we even see it with his mother, Peter's mother-in-law. Look at verse 14. It says, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. So right away, I mean, first of all, there's a double miracle that happens here, as far as I'm concerned. A man brings his mother-in-law to Jesus to be healed. That could be considered American law, a miracle just in and of itself. <laughs> Peter's motive seems to be revealed, because as soon as she's healed, she gets up and starts cooking. So apparently Peter liked her cooking. But notice Jesus heals this woman. Look at verse 16. In evening, in evening they brought to him many who were oppressed with demons and cast out the, the spirits. And with a word, he healed all who were sick. So he has, a, he has power not only sickness, he has power over the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. We see this also further in Matthew 8, verse 29. And behold, or Jesus comes to this demon-possessed man, and behold, they cried out, the demons, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? They know who he is. James 2 says that, that even the demons believe and tremble in James 2, 19. Listen to this. O Son of God, have you come here to torment us before the time? They have a greater fear of Jesus than the disciples in those boats do. They have a clearer picture of who Jesus is and his power than those disciples had. May that not be said of us. We also see that Jesus has the power to forgive sins. In chapter 9, verse 2, it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts for, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I think that's the point of the whole section of scripture here. All of these stories are woven together, not necessarily even chronologically, but it's meant to help us to understand the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, so that you know that I have authority to forgive sins, that I can operate in the spiritual realm, that I am God, very God. I'm doing these things visibly. I'm healing the sick. I'm delivering people from demons. I'm, 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 I'm forgiving this man of sins because I am God in the flesh, and I have great power. And I think there's a connection for us to understanding the power of Christ and the presence of Christ if we're going to have the peace of Christ. And so, the waves are stilled. And the question is asked, in verse 27, the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? They are shocked. They marvel with amazement. They thought that there was something to be feared outside of the boat, but then they realize there's someone in the boat to be more feared than that storm outside the boat. They have an increased, at least, understanding that Jesus is more than they ever thought he was. Maybe that's true of us today as well. Turn your Bibles for a moment to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. Really, my goal today is just to exalt the person of Jesus Christ and all of our thinking, to understand his power his presence, and then therefore we can have his peace. 
In Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite sections of all of Scripture, verse 15, we see something said about our Lord. Listen to these words. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God. When you see Him, He said, you see the Father, the firstborn of all of creation. That means He is first in rank. For by all things... For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is the maker of all things. Of course the wind and the waves obey him. He made them. He is their creator. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the preexistent God of the universe. That's who was in that boat. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. My favorite song all time, we sang one of them this morning, but one of my favorite songs all time, I guess you should say, is All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. I love that song. I actually had it sung at my ordination. Like, you pick the songs, All Hail the Power of Jesus' Name. It still is one of my, my favorite songs. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem. Crown him Lord of all. That's who, that's who our Lord is. It was unfortunate when they actually put the words of that song up on the screen that they misspelled a word, just to remove one letter. They actually said, let angels prostate fall, which was uh, <laughs> awkward to sing. <laughs> I, I remember thinking, I didn't know angels had one, and I wouldn't want to be under an angel that lost one. <laughs> but what we see in Colossians 1, 15 to 18 is that Jesus Christ is the maker and ruler of all of the universe, and he has absolute authority over all things, including storms. Including storms. Turn to, to Revelation 1 just for a moment. Revelation 1. I want to show you a little bit of a picture of this resurrected, glorified Christ. John, the apostle, John, at the end of his life, is on the island of Patmos. He's there because of his faithful service to Christ. It's a penal colony. He has an encounter with the Lord there. And by the way, as you study the book of Revelation, don't ever forget that ultimately Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So, so often we get into time frames and we get into arguments about when is Jesus coming back and, and that's okay. I, I don't mind having those discussions and I have definite opinions and, and you might not even agree with all of my opinions. I always tell everybody, you know, like I, I'm a pre-trib rapture guy and I believe Jesus is going to come and get his church and rapture us off this earth and, and then there's going to be a seven-year period of time that will include the great tribulation and I believe he's coming back a second time and he's going to set up his millennial kingdom and fulfill all of those promises of scripture. Like, I, I'm, that, I'm that guy. And some of you guys will be like, well, I'm not that guy. And I, that's okay. That really is okay. The, 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 the key thing is, is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But if I mock you on our way up in the rapture, don't be surprised. You know what I mean? I'm going to be like, I told you so. But when you read the book of Revelation, I'm afraid this happens, especially in a college setting. When we read the book of Revelation, don't ever get your eyes off of Jesus. It's okay, the timing, all of that. Like I said, I like, I like those discussions. I love teaching this book. I've taught this book seven times. I love this book. But the word revelation or apocalypse literally means unveiling. The idea is 
is God saying, I'm going to end the Bible with this. I'm going to end the Bible by showing you who the lamb is. Remember, remember the book of Genesis, Isaac's with his dad, and he goes, hey, dad, we're going up for a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And, and then John the Baptist comes, and he says, behold, the lamb. And then Revelation 28 times refers to Jesus as the lamb. And the book of Revelation ends with, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor and power glory. It's the lamb. Let's look at this lamb. Let's look and see who was in that boat. Here's a picture of the resurrected, glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13. I'll just start there. And in the midst of the lamb stands, one like a son of man. Clearly, and you read the book of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, you see that the son of man is, is one that has deity. This is, this, is a, this is the title of his deity. The son of man is a title of Christ's deity. Certainly his humanity clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. So he comes looking like a priest and a judge, a king. Verse 14, here's the resurrected, glorified Christ. It says this, The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. This is a reference to Jesus being the Ancient of Days in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. He's the eternal God. His eyes were like a flame of fire. They were penetrating eyes. They were all-seeing eyes. Is this the picture you have in your mind of, of Jesus? Or do you think of more like a European-looking guy that has long hair and is a hippie because that's the pictures you always saw in your books? That is, not, that is not, first of all, that's not what Jesus would have looked like anyhow in his humanity. But we see here in his glory, he is awesome. His feet were like burnished bronze. Bronze was, it refers to the altar in the temple or, and it was made of that as a place of sacrifice. I think it refers to judgment. Refined in a furnace, that's why I think it's referring to judgment, and his voice was like a roar of many waters. His voice was like Niagara Falls. He is powerful. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Is this the picture you have of Jesus? This mighty one whose voice is like the, the sound of Niagara Falls. He just radiates glory. His, his voice is a two-edged sword. Turn for a minute to, to Revelation chapter 19. I want to show you what he does with this voice. It's like a two-edged sword. When Christ returns, the rider on the horse, right? Verse 11 of Revelation chapter 19. Let's just read this in verse 11, another great picture, but I want to see what he does with his voice, the power of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, then one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus, second coming. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, there it is, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron rod. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has written, King of kings and Lord of lords, the supreme ruler who comes and defeats the armies of the world that will be gathered against him with what? A word, just his word. That was who was in the boat with those disciples. 
Do you remember when Jesus was first calling his disciples, and, and he, he has to borrow these fishermen's boats so he can teach to the crowds, and he kind of just goes offshore a little bit, and then they've missed their opportunity to catch fish, and it's later in the afternoon, and, and so he says to Peter, who, who doesn't really know him yet completely, certainly, he says, hey, push out, let's go do some fishing, and Peter goes, you know, fishing time's over, like, we're not going to catch any fish today, and remember, remember Peter throws the net off the boat, and then the net's just so full of fish that, that the boat starts to tip over? And do you remember what Peter's response is? He says, I'm an unclean man. He realizes he's in the presence of holiness and power that's way beyond him. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1 just for a moment. What was John's response to seeing the resurrected, glorified Christ? Revelation 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. He says to John, John, fear not. Of course, think about what we just read, what John saw, the eyes of Christ, the glory of Christ, the, 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 the majesty, the, he, he, he's, he's looking at the Almighty. And then he falls on his face as though dead because he recognizes this, this disciple who was referred to in the Gospel of John. He referred to himself the disciple Jesus loved. Like they had this friendship, this intimacy. And suddenly he sees him for, for all that he is and he just falls down as though dead. And then Jesus comes and puts his hand on his shoulder and says, John, don't worry about it. It's just me. And I would want to say in that moment, Jesus, easy for you to say. What Jesus is really saying here is, John, I have the keys to death in Hades. In other words, I've atoned for your sin. You're clothed in my righteousness. You can stand in my presence because of my grace toward you. So the disciples are shocked. Turn back for a moment to Matthew chapter 8. We're nearly done. Matthew chapter 8. The disciples are in utter shock, and they ask this question. What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him. And I want to ask you that same question today. What sort of man is Jesus that the winds and the sea obey him? Two concluding thoughts, two points of application. I'll give them briefly and we'll close with a song. First one is this. I want to say to you that you're going to face storms in this life. Maybe some of you already are right now. There might be even some of you that are thinking, I don't even know how I'm going to pay off tuition. Like, I don't know how I'm going to get through the semester. I don't know. I, you, know you might just feel some pressure even now. But the first thing I want to say to you is this, clearly from our passage, is that Jesus can be trusted in the storms of life. Warren Wiersbe says this, The disciples looked around and saw danger, and looked within and saw fear, but they failed to look up in faith and see God was in their boat. Faith and fear cannot dwell together in the same heart. So the supremacy of Christ's power to cleanse lepers, to heal the lame, to cast out demons, to cause storms to cease, and even to raise the dead with a single word should bring serenity to our hearts if by faith he lives in us through his spirit. If you look down in in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 2, when he says to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven, that word in the Greek is a word that I... I absolutely love because of where else it shows up, but it literally just means take heart. That's a good interpretation of Tharseo. It's, it's the idea of just be encouraged. Jesus comes and says to this paralytic, be encouraged. 
And I think what I would want to say to you today is your Lord, Jesus Christ, would want to say to you, be encouraged. Turn to Acts chapter 23 just for a moment, because Jesus shows up and talks to Paul at a time where he's really down. And in Acts chapter 23, I think it's in verse 11, we see that Jesus uses the same term with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul's been on trial. I think he's no doubt feeling like a failure. He always wanted to go to Rome and, and, and minister in Rome for the Lord, and he thinks it's over now. I'm not going to make it to Rome. And and then in verse 11 of chapter 23, Jesus, this, this happens. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, here it is, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify about me in Rome. You know what he says to him? Take courage. Be encouraged. I'm with you, Paul. And, and I know some of you today would be like, man, that would be really helpful if Jesus would just right now whisper that in my ear. He just did. Through his word. Take courage. Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. The reality of it is the Holy Spirit lives in you if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Jesus is in your boat. He's in your boat. Tharseo. A holy serenity. Listen to Isaiah 26.3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So maybe the Lord would help us take our eyes off the storm, put them back on Christ. The second concluding point I would like to bring is this, that Jesus can be trusted, not only in the storms of life, but Jesus can be trusted and is worthy of complete submission of my life. If the winds and the waves obey Jesus, I can do no less. J.A. Packer says this, God has a right to interrupt your life. He is Lord. When you surrendered to him as Lord, you gave him a right to help himself to your life anytime he wants. Jesus is Lord. Sometimes I hear people make this, I think, I, I think in, in, in a good-natured way, well-meaning. You need to make Jesus Lord of your life. You cannot make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord of all. You can just submit to him as Lord of your life. And he is worthy. The wind and the waves obey him. How can I do any less? His commandments are always his enablement. And what I would want to say to some of you today is don't fear or allow your abilities to limit God's work in and through your life. You see, um, my story is like this. Like, I, I came to the Master's College. I was, I was already married when I came here. I married my high school sweetheart. We got married when we were 19 years old. I came here when I was around 20. And, and, and so I spent my last two years here. An amazing experience, changed my life. But I was the kid who sat in the back row of chapel, and nobody knew who I was, except for Dr. Greer. So thank you for coming today. Thank you. So sweet. Here's my point. If there had been a yearbook for the Master's College and there had been a most likely to become a pastor, I would have never made it. And it's not that being a pastor is anything superior to anything else, but what I want to say to you is don't let your own sense of your ability or inability limit what God can do in your life because what we see in Scripture throughout is guys like Moses and Joshua and Jeremiah. They always felt like it can't be me, it can't be me. And so what I want to say to you is, is you do great things. You do great things for God as you trust in the power of Christ to do far beyond what you could ever ask or imagine because of his power that's at work within you. But it's going to take faith. You're going to have to trust him. You're going to have to step in situations that you would have never, you know, you just think There's, that's impossible. That can't work. That can't. Can I just say to you today, you can't do it, but he can do it through you. 
You know, everybody always quotes that verse, God won't give you more than you can handle. But what can you handle with God in you, with the Lord in you? There's no limit to what God could do for his own glory. There's a Casting Crown song that has a little line like this, and I'm going to bring it to close and we'll sing. If your eyes are on the storm, you'll wonder if I love you still. But if your eyes are on the cross, you'll know I always have and I always will. If you would, I'd like to put 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7 on the screen. And for our closing prayer, I'm going to ask you to stand and we'll just say this together. And the worship team, you can come on up. We're going we're gonna to sing. I pray today that your hearts would be encouraged as you remember that it is the Lord of glory, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is your Savior, Jesus Christ. And he's promised to never leave you or forsake you. And he's promised that the work he began in you, he will be faithful to complete. You can rest in him. If your heart is anxious this day, put your eyes on the Savior. Would you read with me aloud 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, because he cares for you.